This week's show is brought to you by Paste Interactive. Paste Interactive makes apps that help people perfect their lives. They create a jump chart for wiring content into websites, Staction for staying on task together, and Paprika for tracking your text and to-dos. Check out Paste at pasteinteractive.com. And by Gobble. Gobble has a job opening I want to let you know about. At Gobble, you can write code that feeds people, learn a lot, and deploy every day. Gobble.com connects people with neighborhood chefs, and the engineering team at Gobble is looking to hire programmers that are dedicated to good code, learning, and skill sharing with each other. They achieve continual learning through weekly retrospectives, code review, and the occasional pairing session. If Rails, RSpec, Haml, SAS, and jQuery strike your fancy, apply today. Gobble is located in Palo Alto, California, and they're open to relocating people from around the country. Change Log episode 0.6.7. I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Wynn Netherland. This is the Change Log. We cover what's fresh and new and open source. If you found us on iTunes, we're also on the web at thechangelog.com. We're also up on GitHub. And if you head to github.com slash explore, you'll find some trending reposts, some feature reposts from our blog, as well as our audio podcast. And if you're on Twitter, follow Change Log Show and me, Adam Stack. And I'm Penguin, P-E-N-G-W-Y-N-N. Fun episode this week. Talk to Paul Irish over at Google. About HTML5 and other stuff. Other stuff for, for sure. Uh, we're a couple of fanboys since we, uh, I guess, talk about this stuff all the time. You perked up a bit on this episode. It's actually, you know, a lot of the shows, I mean, RVM, I get that, right? But uh, you go to BDSM and I'm lost. And thank <laughs> God for Steve to come on that show because that wouldn't have been my, my place. But shows like this I can have fun with. So For sure. I had a week off. We took a week down at uh, Lone Star RubyConf down in Austin. Got to meet our buddy Steve Klabnik face-to-face. He uh, brought the house down with his talk on shoes and how we uh, need to support those that give to open source, like Wayne and some others that uh, we've had on the show recently that have you know, just poured out their blood, sweat, and tears into apps that we use every day and just give props to to folks that make our lives easier. And I think that's what we're trying to do here on the change log is just shine a light on folks that uh, are giving away software. That's right. Shine the spotlight on the people that are, that are moving and shaking this world. Absolutely. Back to the web this week with Paul. But uh, if you've got other ideas for who we should have on the show, let us know. Uh, hope to get some NoSQL in the show soon. And I'm trying to track down the folks behind uh, Tmux and some of the other command line goodies that uh, you and I have gotten into lately. So hopefully we'll switch gears a bit. That little session we had today in the terminal was pretty fun, so that would be a fun conversation. I wowed you with the Tmux, didn't I? You did. Fun episode this week. Should we get to it? Let's do it. Chatting today with Paul Irish. From Google. So, Paul, for those that don't know, you want to introduce yourself a little bit about your role over there. Sure. Uh, so, I'm on the uh, Google Chrome developer relations team. And essentially, uh, what I do on my team is I engage with the, uh, the wider web developer community um, and make sure that everyone knows kind of what's capable, uh, what are the capabilities of browsers, like what are the features inside there, what you can get away with, and basically, like, what what can we do to make really like engaging, compelling experiences? And then uh, I also publish a lot of tutorials 
guide screencasts uh, and 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 software to help people do that kind of stuff and do it do it well. So that's kind of pretty much what I what I do. I got a glimpse of that at South by Southwest. I guess you had the uh, the Google event down there where you're doing some demos up on stage. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I got to uh, talk about um, give a brief overview of uh, the HTML5. Uh, Umbrella's feature set, and then also talked a little bit about some of the newer features in the Chrome developer tools. Yeah, you might be the best person to uh, to define this, and I'll stop hogging the mic in a second. <laughs> Adam, ask a question, but HTML5, what's it mean to you? Ah, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> <laughs> Alex. So, I think I think like Dion Almeyer said that it was a. Uh, HTML5 is everything after HTML4, um, which is nice. I, in general, like the, I'm not too pedantic when it comes to the definition of HTML5. I certainly don't think that it's what's in the spec. Um, I'm fine with clarifying that CSS3 is not HTML5, but it's really hard to make a HTML5 demo without using CSS3 because you want it to look good. <laughs> like you're not going to release something with, with web sockets and. Uh, and uh, local storage and not make it look good. So anyways, they, they all kind of get mixed up, and I think that's okay. Um, HTML5 is the term that kind of, like, carries the flag and has the logo, and, like, and that's what all the excitement is about. And sure, it's a little bit messy, but I don't think it's, like, it's very harmful that we use the term HTML5 to mean things that are not technically HTML5. I, so it's, I'm pretty fine with an ambiguous definition there. I'm curious why HTML5, you know, has that military stripe logo. The CSS3 <laughs> is like Air Force. Yeah. It's like the Army and the Air Force. What's that about? I don't I don't know. You know, I actually saw where was it? I saw someone made a a new H, uh, CSS3 logo and they took kind of like the typography of the 5 and then made a 3 out of it and put it on like a blue badge instead of an orange badge and it actually looked really really good. Um I don't know what the iconography is about. Uh I don't. I, I I like the HTML5 logo. The other, those other smaller icons, I don't really have much of a use for myself. Um, so whatever. When you're quoting Dion, I thought you were going with um, the quote that he said, "HTML5 is a jewel that we need to cut into a weapon." Oh yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. It's a uh, it's Yehuda Katz's uh, Twitter bio. It's uh, <laughs> right. Uh, HTML5 is the the gem that we need to cut in. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. It is. Um, the gem that we need to cut into a uh, weapon. Um, but I agree. Like, uh, I think a lot of us, uh, a lot of developers are, are really engaged, uh, and really excited about the web platform. And I think, um, I think it's important that we make the web platform be, uh, competitive with what people are doing on native mobile platforms. Um, and, you know, I hate it when people think that, native apps look and feel better than what we can do with web apps. I think that's like, that sucks. <laughs> that does I, suck. <laughs> and I, I think that, um, you know, web apps, certainly a lot of people, you know, are completely delighted by web apps. And so it's terrible when you hear things like that, because in, in general, I think that not only have people experienced web apps that are, that have kind of changed their, their view of what you can do in a browser, but, um, but the capabilities, uh, that someone might not even know are there. Like I, I was talking to one of my old friends and she was like, yeah, I'm thinking of making an app, uh, an iPhone app. And I was like, why? And she's like, well, it's going to be like a to-do list, something, something, but I want it to work when, it, when I'm not connected. 
And I was like, well, it turns out you can make a web app that works when you're not connected. And she's like, really? I was like, yeah. Like, it might seem weird that you would open up mobile Safari on your iPhone to access a web app, even though you're not connected. Like I can understand the cognitive uh, disconnect there, but, uh, but there's certainly capability that, um, that we're not kind of exploring as developers right now. Well, the, the browser certainly expanded to do far more than I think the very first iteration of it was intended to do. So yeah. it's, it just makes sense that as the web progresses and as technology progresses and as the back end meets the front end and all these things start to collide as we go into this newer space of the web and how it's morphing from app to web app to you name it, um, that, the, that the browser just catch up and allow for a more native experience. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and I think it's actually, like, interesting, you know, GitHub is a really actually interesting example because there's conversations around uh, websites versus web apps. And GitHub is, like, it's, like, half and half, you know? Mm-hmm. They were the first to really make use of HTML5 history and push state to, to do the cool URL rewriting with the state change and the transition. looks really good, works extremely well. Um, falls back is, like, the most progressively enhancement-y friendly thing ever. Um and it works, but like I don't want to call GitHub an app because it's not just like a single page app. Like there are certainly pages, but it's not just a straight up site. Like they, they, it's almost like a hybrid, but I don't want to call it a hybrid. It just like delivers a good user experience, and like that's what they're focused on. So like making a good user experience is more important to them than qualifying uh, their product as an app, which I think is rad. Yeah, not to go too deep on GitHub and glorifying those guys because they are awesome. We we do know that, but I about sure. did two backflips yesterday when I realized I couldn't. I could push. What's the key win E to go into the editor? Right. You know, if I, yeah. almost, I was like, wow, that is just insanely sexy. And yeah, there's fine. many times I want to just edit a readme and or just do a one simple commit to help somebody out. And you either don't do it because you don't want to pull the repo down and do the change and push it back up and do the whole you know terminal slash push scenario then you got uh, just totally. in the web browser it's just sexy it's, it's just awesome but um paul i think you're probably most known for or at least that's what i knew you for at first was uh html5 boilerplate what's the story behind that and how did it come about sure uh well so <clears throat> before i was here at google i uh worked at a interactive agency um in boston it's called isobar and uh it is we we made web app, web apps and websites for everyone, uh, for Nike and Nikon and Reebok and things like that. And I, you know, over the course of making a number of different web projects, I realized that I was always taking uh, clever snippets of code from old projects and then bringing it into new ones. And so I just started kind of developing a, a little template of files of HTML and CSS from JavaScript that made a lot of sense to just like use as a default. Um, kept on growing that. Uh, and we kind of made it the default way that we uh, built sites inside the agency. Um, and then uh, I was like, I decided that we should probably, you know, share that externally. Um, for a while, it was called front end, no, pro front end, pro front end template, I think, um, which is very accurate, but I didn't feel it had a really good name. <laughs> and so I was trying to find a new name. HTML5 boilerplate. Because it, it was like somewhat HTML5 y, though it's mostly like a front end developer's thing. It's not specific to HTML5. And it's certainly not boilerplate as far as like the 
the definition of boilerplate code goes. Like, it's not the minimal uh, amount that you need, but it works. Um, it's a reference library, more or less, right? I mean, I well, so I'm fine. Like, I, I think it works really well, and and the idea is that it's not too codependent on on each other, and and you're completely free to like pull things out of it. Um, it's documented well enough so that you can feel comfortable um, pulling parts. But um, but I think it works really well. Just like as as grabbing uh, the whole uh, boilerplate um, and and deleting a few things that you might not be too keen on, and just using it uh, from the start. You know, I think the important thing is to understand what you're pulling and what you're leaving. Yeah. As developers, I think we are more prone than any other profession to cargo cult. Yeah, totally. Like, the, yeah, there's plenty of things that have just like been kind of good practice or the thing you do uh, mm-hmm. or the thing you don't do. And and a lot of times we don't really understand why. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's interesting because HTML5 Boilerplate, you know, I, I created it and I released it as a way to save people time when starting a new project. And um, and what it ended up uh, also having an effect on is, is more of like an educational thing. There's a lot of techniques in there that um, uh, a lot of people have worked on, refined, and uh, and and are smart. And we we made sure to keep things documented well enough so that you understand it. You can go and find the links uh, about it, read more, and figure out like understand the the justification why you would want to do something like this. So HTML5 boilerplate, it, you know, it's it's this thing you can kind of pull things from, but at the same time, you've got some other kind of cool little niceties that, that fall in there as well. You're using Respond.js in there. And something that I thought was kind of cool too, because I've been using a reset for a number of years now, but um, when and I kind of bashed brains the other day and we're like, why do we keep resetting our CSS to this complete reset? But then we hmm. have to go back in and add bold for certain things. So you also brought in normalized CSS for that as well. What was How, how long has normalized been in the HTML5 boilerplate? Uh, it's only been shipping uh, with uh, boilerplate for the last, I don't know, was it three weeks? I think three weeks ago is when we, when we shipped 2.0 boilerplate. Um, but it was in GitHub for the last, uh, four or five months. Um, How did you find out about it? Well, uh, so the, the long story about it was that, you know, people have doing, been doing resets for a long time. And the first time I started using resets, I was really keen on it. And my, the number of um, edge case bugs that popped up in only one browser, all, that dropped to zero so quick when I started using resets. And I just like, I really knew that this was a lot better than um, than not resetting at all. Um, but as time went on, then you realize, you know, it is kind of annoying that we have to uh, put font weight uh, bold on our Bs and our strongs all over again and our headlines. And it's like, this is kind of silly that we're like, bulldozing everything, building it all back up. And so the, of course the, the better approach and, and what's at the foundation of normalize is only change the things that are different and make sure that they're the same. But what that means is that you need to take inventory of the default way that every browser styles their uh, elements by default and, uh, and then change them accordingly. And so that requires quite a bit of research. Um, uh, WebKit and and Gecko, since they're open source, you can just go and find their default users and style sheet. But for IE, uh, it takes a little bit more work, and same with Opera. So um, Jonathan Neal 
who uh, who actually does the music for the Yakery podcast, um, but he's also a, a really talented front end developer. Uh, he uh, started digging into this. He did a lot of the research. If you go to iecss.com, you can see the default style sheets of uh, the IE browsers and also the other browsers as well. Um, and then uh, Nicholas Gallagher, who's a uh, London-based developer, started digging into this as well. So it was a collaboration uh, between the two of them at start. And then Nicholas took it on uh, as his own project later on. Um, and so it's basically, yeah, it's, it's finding out the differences between the user agent style sheets, only changing what you need to. Um, at the end of the day, you get a, a, st a style, styling file that is smaller than a reset, um, plus uh, because you don't have to uh, re you know, build all that styles back up. And, uh, and it also feels a lot nicer. <laughs> um, I think... I think people are, we're kind of getting tired of, of feeling so redundant in uh, the reset approach of styling. Well, I, I'm sad because I was just so close to being almost as famous as you because I was just about the release on reset. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a joke <laughs> <laughs> to like, you know, reset it. And then there's a separate project to unreset it. I was, cause that's what yeah. I was doing every time I was going crazy. Every time I would reset this, our styles for a new project. I'd be like, well, right. I'm putting bolds and all these other things that you really do want. But yeah, you know, I was so close. Yeah. It's so, like, it's Yahoo had the, uh, Yahoo had a reset and they had a base.css, which was basically an unreset. And, um, and it's funny because it's like, it duplicates all, uh, all the effort that the user agent style sheet already does. The thing that I actually like most about the project, uh, is that now when you're looking inside Chrome dev tools or firebug, and you like select, you know, an H1 or whatever, or a, or a P tag. There's not this enormous list of um, of cascading rules that all got overridden and things like that. Like it just goes back. Like there's maybe two styles that are inherited that you see on the right hand pane, and that's it. Which makes for a much more like cleaner developer experience. I like that. And I guess probably the next thing that comes along with HTML5 Bulletplate is is Modernizer. And that is such a cool project that I don't think I fully understand and or tap into. And I'm not really sure why, but I think Adobe has done something pretty cool with it recently. But how did uh, Modernizer come about? Um, <clears throat> it's funny, Modernizer, uh, so I work on it with Farouk, Atesh, and Alex Sexton. And Farouk launched it uh, maybe was it two years ago or three years ago. I'm not sure. Uh, and I remember when it came out and I was like, um, I don't know. It just has a pink website and it says it modernizes. <laughs> and I was like, all right, sounds cool. Whatever. And then like two months later I was, I was doing some, some work with some CSS three and I was probably like doing something with, with a box shadow and I, I put a box shadow on. And then I was like thinking about what happens when I'm in a browser that doesn't have native, native box shadow support. I probably actually want to do something a little bit differently. And I was like, hmm, how to do this? Wonder if like I could use JavaScript to like figure that out. And then I like went back and I looked at the modernizer site. I was like, oh, it does exactly that. <laughs> and I was like, cool. And then and then I I looked at the JavaScript behind it and I was like, oh, this is terrible. This is no. Oh, and then so me and my friend Ben Allman, we rewrote the entire thing. 
um, and told Farouk, and he's like, oh, cool, okay. And then, so then I joined the project uh, after <laughs> telling him that its code was terrible. Um, but now, yeah, it's really good. So Modernizer basically detects all these sorts of CSS3 things and lets you kind of style the page differently if, you're, if it's not there. And it also does a really robust detection of all sorts of HTML5 and, and other features that you want to know that are there. And it gets tricky, like... Um, User agent sniffing gets a really uh, bad rap, and uh, much of that is deserved. But one of the trickiest parts, I mean, one of the worst parts about user agent sniffing is because everyone does it their own way. And um, and a lot of times when you do things your own way, you do it wrong the first time and the second time. And uh, with feature detection, it's it's it can also be quite similar. Um, a lot of times writing your own feature detects, you're going to do it the wrong way. Um, like... Detecting for HTML5 forms, um, a lot of the published techniques for that are flawed at this point. Um, and so Modernizer is kind of the clearinghouse for feature detects. And we make sure that our detects work across everywhere that we can um, and tackle all sorts of edge case bugs that pop up in, like, uh, there's a really nasty one in IE8 that runs on Windows Server 2000 uh, without the media the entertainment media service pack <laughs> installed <laughs> you'll get you'll get an exception if you look for a uh audio elements can play type function it'll just like blow up in your face you know we've been using modernizer in the changelog for a while and when we first uh put it on there we were getting a lot of complaints about it uh, trying to uh, test for local storage ah yeah, yeah. tweak that yeah that yeah we changed uh we changed that there was a um uh, there's a Safari setting uh, that, well, there's two ones. There's there's one, a, a Firefox problem if you have your security settings really high, um, and we nerfed that. And then there was also a Safari preference where if you change your preferences, then it always asks you if, if, you, uh, if this thing can use your local storage, and you have to s say yes. And that's equivalent to, like, okaying every single cookie that gets placed on your browser. So, I don't know. But the cool thing now with Modernizer is that there is no default production-ready version. It's like, you know, jQuery has the, the new minified version. You grab that, you're good. Um, there's nothing like that for Modernizer. So with Modernizer 2, which we put out a few months ago, your build will be custom. You select only the features that you want to detect. Uh, we make the, sm the file as small as it can be. Um, and so it goes as fast as it can, and the file's uh, really tiny. So uh, I, I really like that method of kind of distribution for now. Just curious if you've seen a rack modernizer from Marshall Yunt, friend of the show? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, there, there's actually, um, I think there's three total um, projects that, that take modernizer and kind of enable that visibility on the server side. And I think that's a, I think that's a really cool approach. It's like the old browse caps, except not doing uh, user agent sniffing, yeah. just doing feature detection. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like that. I think that's really a wise way. Um, you have a lot more control, so you don't have to rely on JavaScript to, to manage everything for you. That's really cool. I think the first time that I came across uh, your name in a memorable way, I'm sure passed across uh, before that, was uh, did you coin the term FOUT, or mm. did you? Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> Flash uh, of unstyled text. Yeah, totally. Um, that I got I got really into web fonts a few years ago, and um, and at the time, the the behavior for web fonts in Firefox was uh, to um, that 
you would get a default, you would get a, a like Arial or Times New Roman or something font. And then the web font would download and then you would get the new upgraded font. And there was that little flash of going from the regular boring font to the new font. And a lot of people hated that. And a lot of people actually prefer that because the WebKit behavior is that it's all invisible and then you get the new one. Um, what's really cool is that there, so there was a lot of conversations around this because people felt strongly in different ways. And so now uh, moving forward, there's a new kind of hybrid approach. Uh, so what was adopted in Firefox, this shipped in Firefox 4 um, and will actually be landing as a, as a modification to the, to the behavior in WebKit soon is uh, the text is invisible for three seconds. And after three seconds, if that web font has still not downloaded, then it goes back and it goes to the fallback font and then eventually to the web font whenever that's ready. Um, but so it's like invisible up to a certain threshold. And then you're like, okay, I actually want to read the text on this website. It finally gives it to you. Um, and so you're, you're pretty much covered. Uh, so that's kind of where things are going. I'm convinced that the uh, the CSS3 spec has kept uh, JavaScript developers employed more than anybody else. <laughs> you know, we have the uh, Google Font Loader yeah. um, that can load fonts both from Google Font Directory or your own or Typekit. Yeah, right. Does some of that as well if you uh, need a polyfill for uh, your other browser. So speaking of polyfills, uh, um, are the is the universe growing or shrinking? Are we needing these less, or are we finding more ways that we need these things? Uh. More, probably more. <laughs> like I just saw yesterday, uh, what is that? It's iewebgl.com. It's a plugin that uh, enables the use of WebGL content in IE, uh, which is pretty cool. And apparently their performance is really great. Um, although thinking about it, like if you're going to have your user, your IE user install a plugin uh, to view your WebGL content, you might as well make that plugin Chrome frame so that it's, so that they get all the other benefits beyond just WebGL. But I think, you know, to be honest, so I maintain this list of polyfills on the Modernizer Wiki. And a lot of stuff comes in there um, that give you functionality of HTML5 stuff and CSS3 stuff. Um, a lot of it's really cool. Uh, like I, I like using um, input type equals range polyfills so that I get a slider in Firefox instead of a, a not a slider. <laughs> um, but to, the polyfills that I use the most are actually uh, ECMAScript polyfills. So I really like uh, function prototype bind, and I like um, my array extras, and I like object.keys, um, and things like that. I end up using those uh, polyfills quite a bit uh, more, probably a, a considerable amount more than the, than the more robust HTML5 and CSS3 ones. You mentioned the uh, input type range. I've found lately I've had to adjust CSS selectors when doing forms and things. Used to, you could just get by with the input type text and a text area. Now it seems like you need to select anything that has a type and then opt out of input type button or, or uh, submit or reset. Because yeah. there's just a growing number of those now. Yeah, yeah. Styling form controls is really tough. And, I mean, that's styling form controls is the reason that, uh, because it is so tough, that's the reason that, that Mozilla has not yet um, implemented some of the new form types is because they want to make sure that, that you have the ability to make those look uh, like you want. Um, and so once they figure that out, then we'll be seeing uh, a few more of those coming into Firefox. So prior to moving to Google, were you a, uh, a WebKit guy or a Firefox Firebug guy? Um, 
I both. <laughs> What's the the biggest jump moving? I, I'm assuming at some point you were firebug. Like most of us started out moving from firebug as your everyday um, development tool to uh, to WebKit. I'm assuming you're camped out in Chrome for the most part now. Yeah, yeah. I was I was an enormous firebug advocate. Um, I gave presentations on how to use firebug more effectively, and um, I collected every single like tutorial uh, that was ever posted on on firebug online. I was like all about it. Um, because like, to be honest, everyone, there was a lot of features that people didn't know about in firebug and it was incredibly powerful. Um, even like three years ago when I was, when I was all into it. Um, but you know, I think the way that it's happened for a lot of web developers is they end up switching over to Chrome because, uh, they really like the browsing experience. And, uh, and then what, since they're already in it, then they open up the dev tools and then they, figure out if, if they can make that work. And yeah, for a while, it, it, I came for the JavaScript console because I found it the autocomplete yeah. a lot better than Firebug. Huh. I hated the CSS inspection and things. That's gotten a lot better lately. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that still bugs me, and I don't know if, it, if it's just me as user error or what, it takes me about 10 clicks to actually select element style. We were supposed to click in there to put <laughs> styling on a, on a particular element over huh. in the uh, inspector. Yeah, it takes it takes a good amount. So, um, look, yeah, there's a few things that we're thinking about. One of the things that we're thinking about is uh, so like it certainly has gotten a lot better. Like a year and a half ago, if you said that you hated manipulating styles, I would totally agree with you. Um, but now we have autocomplete on everything, and mm -hmm. and tabbing between property and value is a piece of cake, and and a lot of that has gotten uh, quite a bit better from a, like a just a usability standpoint. Um, one of the things that we're thinking about doing. Uh, a small little difference in behavior between what people have seen in Firebug and what, what we have is that when you're uh, clicking to either either with elements, you're manipulating attribute names and values, or in the styles, um, you're playing with styles. And uh, in Firebug, it's only a single click, and then you're in edit mode. Um, and it always in the WebKit inspector, it's always been double-click to enter into edit mode. And, and I wonder if if that's if single click is better, um, and so we're we're thinking about kind of experimenting with that and seeing if that makes for a more usable product. Uh, that's yeah. funny you say that because it's it's something that I kind of battle recently. I like Win said I pretty much camp out in uh, either Firefox and or Chrome or Safari and pretty much in a WebKit or a Gecko browser more or less. And I'm yeah. using either Firebug or the Dev Tools in Chrome, and and I find that. Now that you just say that, now I realize why I think Chrome is a little unusual for me is because that one small thing, it's not a huge thing, but I think sometimes I have an element selected, like I have it highlighted in mm -hmm. blue, and mm -hmm. then I want to jump into an attribute, and like a single click should work then. But you know, this isn't a, a stage for me to give you feedback on that particular feature, but I do see that disconnect. How much of that is Chrome's influence? How much of it do you share with WebKit and Safari and every other WebKit browser? Uh, so um, the the, the large majority of the commits that are going into the uh, WebKit inspector are coming from the Chrome team right now. Uh, but uh, a pretty much 95% of their work, um, the work that that team is doing, is going at into the WebKit level. There are a number of features that uh, are specific to Chrome, like uh, our heap snapshots for memory, uh, memory leak detection or the ability to live edit JavaScript is unique to how we have uh, V8 working. 
Um, but most, pretty much everything else uh, is happening at the WebKit level, which means that Safari gets that um, and all the mobile WebKit ports as well. Um, so one of the features that we announced at Google I.O. was remote debugging. So uh, you have the ability to do, to basically uh, your, your, your host browser or your, your client browser can run a little uh, a web server, which hosts the dev tools, and you can open up um, the dev tools in your desktop machine's browser and, uh, and then look at like the network info or like do full script debugging, um, that's happening on your, on your, either your phone or your tablet. So the, oh, wow. yeah, the Blackberry playbook is already shipping with that. Um, currently no other devices are, uh, but if you're on the Blackberry playbook, you can totally just use your machine and, and debug that, uh, the JavaScript on that tablet, which is really rad. Uh, and we're expecting, you know, since it's at the WebKit level, everyone that every manufacturer that ships ships that can can have that functionality. So, the next uh, year or so, we're going to see a lot more devices with that. Now, switching gears a little bit uh, to to use Win's phrase so eloquently. <laughs> mm. Uh, <laughs> little inside joke there. I, I can tell that you're a little bit into CSS3, at least from what I can tell just from your social profile. Sure. Um, and you've created a few pretty neat tools. One CSS3, please, and the other one, Mother Effing Text Shadow. That's a, a pretty yeah. cool little website there. And you kind of dive into these fun little ways to uniquely show off some very skilled design talents from what I can see, too. But These make micro apps look huge. Yeah, I mean, this... <laughs> Um, I like I like this for one the styles. I'm going to compliment you there, but what I want to come into is the state of CSS3, um, and just kind of what is really fun out there that people are really just using well. What what is over defining in CSS3, and what is what is to come from CSS3? Uh, I think you know. So I think you forgot mother effing HSL, uh, which is <laughs> okay. which is also pretty rad. I really like HSL as a way to pick colors. Way better than RGB. Um, so check that out if you want. But, uh, our, um, our favorite actually is HSL Picker. Yeesh. I don't know if you've seen that one. Whatever. That name sucks, man. <laughs> Need some work. Uh, but anyways, uh, some of the most exciting things are happening. Uh, yeah. Because I mean, I mean, you said that you can't even launch an H- – you can't even use HTML5 boilerplate and or do an HTML5 demo without including CSS3. So there's got to be some fun things that are just being bolted onto the – the design experience we now have and now are capable of with this brand new tool that's being far more supported than in the past. It was just difficult to even get the most oddities of, of bugs fixed in IE and, and your obscure browsers, but it's a whole different world there now. Yeah, totally. And we're finding a lot more bugs, I think. like like Because the styling uh, possibilities are are getting so crazy, you know, like I actually have a fix landed today in WebKit that I've been watching for a while, which was if you put a 2D transform, a scale on an iframe, there's some really weird clipping behavior. <laughs> You're using iframes. And, oh, yeah. Well, 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 what I had is like I do all my slides, my presentations, my slide decks are in HTML5. And on each slide, sometimes I would like just iframe in a website and it'd be like talking about, you know, modernizer, for instance. So I'd have the iframe, but I would want to shrink it down so that it fits inside the uh, slide. So I do a scale like 0.7 or something, and so it looks perfect inside the slide. But there was this weird behavior. Um, so like there are edge case uh, situations where things don't work the way that you'd expect, and those get fixed. But there's a lot of exciting places. Um, one of the things that comes to mind is uh, Leia Veru's CSS Gradients Gallery, 
um, which showcases a lot of gradients that she's made and other uh, CSS experts have been making. You know, in gradients, there's just linear gradients and radial gradients, and yet they're able to make these incredible like plaid patterns and patterns that come from pottery. Um, and really impressive stuff. Uh, and so I really like the people who, who decide that they're just going to take, you know, a small feature, whether it's like box shadows or gradients, and like really explore uh, the boundaries of it. Um, yeah, you know, I was doing that. I'm writing a chapter for the the SAS book on uh, drop shadows, and so I was trying to see what shapes I could make. So even from one circle, I was able to create like the old Simon Says game nice. via just different color drop shadows. Yeah. I was curious on uh, mother effing text shadow here. How come I can only go on one, uh, one axis? What? You can go on four axes. Yeah, oh. one, one at a time. Oh, hit the WTF checkbox. Ah, okay. Well, then, yeah, it didn't. Okay, there you go. Okay, nice. Clearly, nice. yeah. Yeah, Clearly. did you make sure to hit the all the way button? Oh, no. the rainbows? Yeah. That was rainbow. nice. That was and you're also welcome. We have, we have content editable on that text, so you can just click into the text. Oh, and nice. Change it to change log. Yeah. That looks That's definitely good. going in the show notes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things... Oh, sorry. I, I, one of the things that I'm really, really excited about in CSS3, or CSS4, actually, is what it's going to be, is filters. Um, filters are coming in kind of from the SVG side of things, but it's going to be really pretty trivial in, in CSS. So we'll be able to, like, in regular styles, we'll be able to say, like, blur... Uh, 20 pixels, and we'll get a 20 pixel radius blur on that content, which is like blur is something that we wanted in CSS for a while. Or like, um, we'll be able to like desaturate the colors of whatever HTML content that is, or like, um, do all sorts of like the filters that you know from Photoshop. Uh, we are able to do in like just a line of CSS. I'm really excited about that stuff. So. Somewhere the IE team though is laughing at us. Oh yeah, and their filters. I mean, they were they were right. Up. I mean, that that API was absolutely horrible, but <laughs> true. That feature set was super cool. There's got to be some you know newbie developer that's getting into this, and they're seeing some sort of uh, you know polyfill for doing some of those things in, in older browsers, older versions of IE, and just think to themselves, what is DirectX? Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of legacy. That's a bad package. word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, on the notion of CSS3, I think this is kind of cool that you have Mother Effing Tech Shadow and you've got CSS3, please. But the first thing that comes to mind since Wynn just mentioned his SAS book that he's writing is the fact that we're both just SAS lovers in general. And really? these tools are always Cheers. useful to us, but um, they don't give us SAS mix-ins to, to, to this stuff. Like That's what kind of drives me crazy, that all this stuff just spits out as CSS. And it's almost as if the CSS3 world just... just uh, doesn't appreciate, doesn't look at, doesn't care for what SAS is doing for CSS3. Yeah, you know, so uh, I do. Okay. <laughs> um, I really, I really like uh, the the authoring experience that SAS gives. I love the feature set that Compass provides. Um, I really like uh, authoring in SCSS, and I think that, and 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 you might have seen that. Uh, there's proposals from the WebKit uh, team to bring a lot of the same types of things, of variables mm -hmm. and mix-ins, uh, hierarchy, uh, into WebKit's implementation of CSS and, and getting that specified so that other browsers can do it. And so there was recently a face-to-face -face, um, uh, meetup 
of the CSS working group. And they spent uh, a lot of time talking about if they can uh, make that happen in the standards process. So that's, that's moving ahead. Um, I think part of it, as far as the, the CSS community getting on, adopting SAS and, and learning how nice it is and how much time it saves is like, you know, people are scared, scared of the command line. <laughs> I think that like that takes care of pretty much 90% of the problem. Um, but, but, uh, but I totally agree that, um, those tools are, are extremely valuable, especially for this type of work. So it sounds like you're a SAS and compass user then. Uh, um, uh, sort of, no, I mean, sort of enough. Yes. Not often, but I would, if I needed to. I'm a server side code. you sling? Yeah. Uh, oh, I don't. I don't sling any at all. I know JavaScript, and I don't know anything else. Um, Not even Node. Well, I mean, I could write Node. I've done. <laughs> I've done like three hours worth of Node work. Um, so there's that. But in general, I really like being inside of a browser, <laughs> and so that's where I spend my development time. I feel the same way. Yeah. Um, s- switching gears to one other thing, it seems like you know. Also, with propping up HTML5 bullet plate, you, what you're really about at, at the core is about standards, more or less. And you've got this very cool website I just found because we're doing this interview with you, which is W3Fools. And then not only that, but you also have um, you also have what is this one called? It's Isobar. Yeah, the Isobar. Web standards and best practices document. Yeah, I love this. I mean, is this pretty well cut up and current? Uh, yeah. So um, that was with my old agency, but they just uh, they've been maintaining it, and they released a new version of it uh, like two months ago or so. Uh, so that's been maintained. Um, that was developed around the same time that the genesis of HTML5 boilerplate uh, was kind of percolating, and um, it just has kind of coding guidelines and and things that make it easier for a team to kind of. Uh, write maintainable code because they all kind of follow the same practices, uh, and and I think that's wise. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think it's important that more important to me than uh, the like semantic class names. I don't really care for semantic class names a whole lot. I care about like is this maintainable for me in the future? Is this maintainable for the person that takes over? And if I'm developing this on a team, I want to make sure that the team can develop it without like asking all sorts of questions and that it makes sense. And so I think a lot of that is documentation and kind of the spreading of best practices, not only within your team, but like of the entire community. Right. Yeah. From your profile, it's linked to as front end coding standards, which I think is maybe a little bit better name than ISOVAR, but uh, that's the name of the company. But W3 schools, I think, I hope nobody listening to this podcast actually uses W3 schools, but from what you say here, that they're in trouble and that they have refused to swap the name because they are not in connection with W3. Um, I think that's just, just super wild. But, I mean, from a standards point of view, what is it that drives you crazy about people that um, do things like this or don't even follow standards or just don't have any ideas about what standards are? Like you said, semantic classes. And that's when people talk standards, that's nine times out of ten what they're talking about is a semantic class name or something like that. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's really complicated. So um, I think a lot of us got into uh, believing in web standards and learned that XHTML was, was the right way to do things. Tables were terrible. You should write it in XHTML. All your class names should be semantic. 
um, those sorts of things. I think that now there's a lot of people uh, finding out that 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 might not have been the best use of their time. Um, and so there's an interesting thing there uh, where kind of p people are running into the reality of what uh, front-end authoring means and what are actually the consumers of uh, that, of what we're working on. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm actually really, you know, excited about people doing things the right way and doing things the best way in, in a way that's, you know, um, time efficient for them and has a big payoff. And, uh, and so I want to make sure that, that people are, are developing in the most effective way. At the same time, I don't want to see them waste time. So I don't want to see them waste time with bad documentation. And that's how the W3 Fools site came about. Um, I, I should say that uh, W3 Schools has gotten better. Um, we kind of were their bug tracker for a good number of months. And so they fixed things up. And now at the bottom of every page on W3 Schools is a if you find an error on this page, please submit this form. And it's right there on every single page, which is a huge improvement. Um, before it was just an email address that was really hard to find. So things are actually are better there. At the same time, I'm still a huge proponent of people looking up documentation on uh, Mozilla's uh, Developer Center. Um, I contribute to it almost daily, as do many, many other really smart people. So that's where I think people should get their, get their reference information from. Game for some questions from Twitter. Sure. These are always interesting. When will Chrome add view source to the view menu? Joe Devon wants to know. Wow. I guess that makes sense. So. It's there if you under I'm, developer. Yeah, right? I'm looking. It's under you view developer, and then you have three ch options, one of which is view source. I, don't know. I think using a mouse is pretty slow. Bro. It's Command Alt J, right? Uh, Command Alt U for the for the source. The view source, and then J for the. I'm always going to the JavaScript yeah, console. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. They're not uh, is my answer. And learn the keyboard shortcut and stop clicking. <laughs> the Red Dirt JS wants to know if you'll come and speak. Uh, is that that sounds like in the in the middle of the country somewhere, right? Oklahoma. Cool. It's, like it's just north of Texas. Of the country. I'm I'm down to come speak as long as I can. Sure. Okay. We'll convey the message that you're down. I'm down. Brian the coder wants to know who's going to win the GOP nomination. Wow. Um, uh, I <laughs> 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 uh, wow. Did you guys see that? What's, Ron Paul. Yeah. Uh, you guys see what's homegirl? Something O'Donnell, O'Donnelly, the girl who walked out on Piers Morgan's uh, interview. She was like, I don't like interviews. I'm going to stand up now. <laughs> I think she's going to win it. She's Rosie? Got, she's, she's got tacked with. Uh, sure. Is that Rosie? Rosie? Rosie O'Donnell? No, no, no. She's oh, like a different a one. Delaware Tea Party. She's not actually running lost. Yet. Yeah. Um, but she's got, she's got promise. DJ or DG Combs wants to know any chance HTML5 Canvas CSS sprites will allow native animation. Adam, you want to take this one? He's got a nice. Uh, we may have been rickrolled with this one. He <laughs> includes a YouTube link to a Mickey Mouse video. Yeah, I was. I, I saw this before and I was a little curious. I really. Native web animation, right? I mean, you can you can animate so. CSS animation, which is in WebKit and now Firefox, uh, 
you can actually animate a background position of an image sprite and make it animated. And you can like have like a little Contra character walking across the screen and he's like walking and you can do it only with CSS. That's pretty cool. And that's native web animation. Of course you can animate on a canvas. You can animate uh, anything with CSS transitions. Uh, So we, we've seen (laughs) web animation for a while now, I guess. What's the scoop on Webm? Uh, Webm uh, is Webm. Dang near killed him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we uh, I don't know. Um, so we have Webm support in Chrome, and Firefox, and Opera. Um, we don't have it in uh, Safari or IE. Uh, IE and Safari support H sixty four. And uh, Chrome still does, actually, but uh, Firefox and Opera do not. Um, and if you're doing video uh, that you want to distribute via HTML5 video, you need to be encoding in those two formats and those two formats only. Um, and that's just how it's going to be. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, just like make sure that your workflow makes it uh, really uh, efficient to always be encoding to two formats. Um, because that's just how it's going to be. Unless you want to like manage the, the flash fallback or like, or whatever, um, which is totally an option as well if you want to do that. Um, but yeah, or you're not going to get it on iOS, I suppose. So it, it takes a little bit of work to be honest, like, um, Zencoder, I know Zencoder and there's a few other video serving, uh, video services that kind of, you give it one file and it makes HTML5 video work everywhere for you. Uh, those services are actually really nice. Um, save you a lot of headaches. It's like web fonts. Web fonts are also really a pain. Uh, there's a lot of edge cases. And so using um, things like Google web fonts uh, saves you quite a bit of uh, headaches. So, yeah. So speaking of uh, HTML5 audio and video, um, what can we expect advancements in the shadow DOM and some of the uh, below the, the surface things we can style? Yeah. So, um there's a shadow DOM uh, setup in WebKit, but right now uh, none of it is really uh, developer-facing at the moment. Um, there is some really exciting stuff going on. Uh, it's called it's it's very much related. It's called the component model, and if you check it out on the the what we g uh, the what working groups wiki, uh, you can dig into the component model. It's kind of a new way of structuring. Um, elements into reusable components. It's kind of what we've always been doing, but like it's basically baking it into the browser as a native way to to build components. And I think it's really, really exciting. So right now it's being proposed kind of to the standards community. Uh, I'd love to see developers uh, take a look into it and see if it makes sense and and, and post their feedback if they think there's uh, changes that should be made or whatever. Um, but it looks really promising from here and looks like a, a wise way to move, kind of move the web platform uh, forward. What about WebKit support for styling those uh, HTML5 validation bubbles? Ah, yes. There's a uh, on the uh, so the wiki. Sorry, the WebKit bug tracker is hosted on Track, and Track has a wiki there. And there's this one page called like Styling Form Controls on the WebKit Track wiki, and it has all the details on styling those uh, things. So um, I know Nathan Smith. Uh, who made Formalize. Mm-hmm. Um, he was working a lot on 
on those validation things, I pointed him to that page and he f- was able to f- figure out the, uh, the last of his styling woes. So, uh, so that's the page that you want to check out. You know, sadly, I've turned them off on our pages just because uh, Firefox doesn't allow you to style them. Although they do look nicer by default, the black ones on Firefox, yeah. the ugly uh, pink things that come back with uh, WebKit. So I've just kind of turned those off for that, now just because. That's fine. I, to be honest, I'm, a, I'm, not, I'm not too um, aggressive on adopting HTML5 form validation right now. I think that um, I, I would not yet really go all crazy on that just yet. All right, so we're we're near the end of our show, which is, has just been a pleasure to have this chat with you about HTML5, CSS3, yeah. and all these fun, fun things with browsers and the future, more or less. And I particularly liked when you mentioned CSS4, so that was nah. <laughs> I did, I did a back. Yeah, man, CSS level four, man, it, it's <laughs> it's already in draft. It's coming. There you go. So I imagine you have to have some sort of hero out there that you just. Uh, are either dying to work with on a project or throw up one of these microsites like you do for, for these fun tools that you make, like you mentioned, uh, mother effing HSL and text shadowing and uh, even CSS3, please. So so sites like this or just fun things that you do, is there anybody out there that is just a hero to you or somebody that you like to pair with that you can mention here on the show? Uh, the the person who has been like blowing my mind recently is Chris Coyer of CSS Tricks. Uh, Chris has just been like dominating for the past like four years, like writing on his blog about totally crazy advanced CSS and also like CSS fundamentals and like tackling the entire spectrum of like, uh, of web design and development professionals and, um, really just like puts a lot of effort into sharing everything that he learns. And I, I think it's really inspiring to me that he's so um, big into publishing everything that he learns. You know, that's something that I try and do, and, and he excels at that. So he is at the top of that list right now. What do you think about that new skin he's got on his site? Oh, yeah, it's hot. I told him, I told him that... Uh, so when you, re, when you resize the browser, there's all these kind of transitions when it like switches into the media queries, and, and there's all these transitions when things kind of rearrange. And the search box at the top has a 1.2 second transition as it moves from the left to the top and back again. And I was like, Chris, you really, that's 1.2 seconds is really long. And, and, and he like vetoed it. I told him and he's like, veto. So he's <laughs> not changing that. But aside from that one terrible, terrible thing, uh, the site's really hot. Yeah, it is. It, it is pretty hot. It uses, it uses uh, the new modernizer. It uses Respond. Uh, it uses a bunch of tricks from HM5 Boilerplate. It's got it's got a lot of good stuff going on inside of it. Good stuff. Well, um, I think the other question we asked, and we probably have at least one more second to do it, is there anything besides HTML5, CSS3, and the common things that you mentioned that you're well known for? Is there anything else out there in open source that uh, that if you had extra time or a free moment, you're just dying to play with that uh, we haven't talked about today? Um, anything out there in open source that I'm dying to play with? SAS, no. Compass. Uh, yes, both of those. <laughs> um, I would also point out that uh, one of the projects that I don't talk about too much um, that I'm really keen on, I have a, a, a repo on GitHub. Uh, it's called Lazy Web Requests. And it's just uh, things that would be really helpful for the developer community if they existed. Like a screenshotting service that you could just pass it like, um, screenshot thing.com slash, and then you pass it a URL and you like say what the width is, and then it gives you a screenshot back 
um, in that width, and it takes a screenshot with like a really good browser, so it like can handle everything. Or you know, um, uh, there's the, Jeffrey Grossenbach's doing that on the Peep Code blog, except he's doing it in the command line with the web or WebKit to PNG. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That uses pretty old legacy stuff. I want to. Someone actually. So, so I posted this as a as something on Lazy Web Requests, and someone actually made it um, with Phantom JS and and Node uh, like three days ago. So so that idea is already taken. Um, but, <laughs> but on the repo was a bunch of other stuff that uh, that would really help everyone. So it's kind of like a bunch of weekend projects. And what's the uh, repo called again? Lazy Web Requests. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there, and a lot of the projects have already been people have taken them on and like basically finished them. And so I kind of have to clear out the bug tracker because uh, a lot of the things are, are done, but, um, but there's still plenty of cool stuff in there. So if you're looking yeah, that's for, awesome uh, for because projects, young programmers, a lot of times, you know, when we first get into this, you're like, you know, I've got all this energy of, yeah. I feel like I've got some skills, but what do I make? Right. And yeah, it, yeah. as I get older, I'm like, when do I have time to right. do half the ideas I come up with? Yeah. So, this is awesome. Cool. And it's actually all issue based and they can respond to it and, do a fork and check it in and it closes it out. Yep. Totally. That's, this is, uh, I love the way that GitHub has grown. I mean, give them more kudos. Why don't we? But, um, I know for a while in our day job, we used uh, at least the first month we used their issue tracking, uh, in lieu of deciding to move to pivotal tracker, but, right. and it worked well for us. It did its, it did its job and on commit closing issues and they've just done a phenomenal job with this in general, but very cool. Well, Paul, I think I speak for, for Wynn and probably everybody listening to this uh, podcast. We certainly appreciate uh, the efforts that you put into your work and your passion around it, and we appreciate the mother effing things that you do, whatever <laughs> they might be uh, out there. And just thanks for coming on the show. Cool. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. This has been awesome.